I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 8th, 2013. You're ready for the <clears throat> this year's installment of the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which. Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there in the name of God. And, well, <clears throat> we do the comparative work. We open up our Bibles and see if what people is what what they're saying, if it squares with Scripture. That's the idea. The Bible is the canon. It's the rule. It's the norm. And if what you're saying isn't saying the same thing as Scripture, uh, you're wrong. It's just that simple. And it's all about authority. Listen, I, I go with the Bible's authority because Jesus said the Bible's authoritative. And he's king, and he proved it by raising himself from the dead. So who am I to think that I can <clears throat> know better than Jesus? Anyway, so a lot happened over the weekend. Um, real quick, I just want to, if you haven't heard the news, um, although it'd be tough to not hear this, um, Rick Warren's 27-year-old son took his own life um, over the weekend, and, uh, and you know, it's an extremely sad story. And uh, I guess the news is, is that, he, you know, that came out is that he, his entire life uh, he has been struggling with mental illness. And so um, apparently he just had enough and, and took his own life. And so um, my condolences go out to Rick Warren and to uh, Kay Warren and the entire Warren family. It's no no parent should have to bury their own child. It's absolutely a tragedy, and as the scripture says, we mourn with those who mourn. And so, um, our prayers and condolences go out to Rick Warren. Now, with that, we're going to change gears, and let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We have a lot of ground to cover. 
A lot of ground to cover today because today we'll be looking at the you know, the first two contestants, two contestants in our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And um, got to tell you, the um, the <clears throat> contestants that you've all been sending me via email, it's. I think that we have one slot still open. By the way, if you want to submit. Uh, a sermon to be considered for the worst Easter sermon of the year contest, please send them to talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. By the way, this is a thing that we do year after year after year. And the point being this is that if you really want to know <clears throat> what's going on with a church, oftentimes Easter is the uh, is the sermon that will tell you. Um, Christmas and Easter are the times when it's clearly about Jesus. And if the pastor makes it about somebody else than Jesus you know that there's something wrong. Now, funny thing, that's my like my rule of thumb. I have taken the time to go back through and um, review um, previous contestants, if you would, uh, in our worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And what I've noticed is that there is a percentage of the pastors who have been featured in the worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest in years past here at Fighting for the Faith who um, have, well for lack of a better way of putting it, straightened up. And uh, you can tell they've made a concerted effort to, you know, at least try to make the sermon somewhat about Jesus and his death and resurrection. So you should know that. Um, most notably would be like Troy Gramling, although his sermon was, well, as, as they always are, a train wreck. You can tell you could tell that he put some effort into it because I don't I, I'm convinced that guy doesn't want to to be awarded the worst Easter sermon of the year because he's already been awarded the worst Christmas sermon of all time. And so he made a concerted effort to somewhat try to make it uh yeah. And he, and so, you know, he, as a result of his efforts he didn't quite make it into the stinking pile. And so, and funny enough, Troy Gramling will not be featured in this year's contest. So I consider that to be one of the upsides of this. Although, you know, I get the occasional email from people telling me that I'm a gunky head and that I'm really mean-spirited and awful because I do this. And the answer, my answer back to people who say such thing is, no, no, no. It is not mean-spirited and awful or wrong or judgmental to point out when a pastor isn't preaching Christ on Easter or any given Sunday of the year, uh, the most it's unloving of the pastor to preach something other than Christ. The one who's being unloving is the is the perp, not the person pointing it out. You know, it's, seriously. If I mean, if if our society ran the way a, a lot of people run churches, okay, think of it this way, okay. Um, we've all seen those uh, crime investigative television shows, you know, where, you know, they're trying to solve a murder or, you know, some crime or whatever. And then they've, they've, they've narrowed it down to potentially a few different people who could have committed the crime. And so they arrest somebody who they think is the perpetrator, right? And what they do is they, they then have that person uh, participate in what's called a lineup. Right. And so we've all seen it. You know, you, you got like five or six different guys who all kind of walk in. Everybody turns to the left. And then, you know, the, the board that's the, behind them has, you know, lines on it to, to demonstrate how tall that person is. And then they all look, you know, at, at you know, at, it's basically a, a mirror that you can look through uh, if, when you're on one side of it. But uh, the people who are in the lineup can't see who's looking at them. So. And they all do their little pose. They turn around, give them a profile in the front side, and then they all leave or, you know, they stand there for a while. 
and who who's ever supposed to identify the perpetrator um you know says oh yeah that's the one right there the, the number 3 he's the person who robbed the bank right or he's the one who i saw fleeing the scene of the crime now if churches if the if the law enforcement system worked the way uh, a lot of christian churches operate then what would happen immediately after the lineup okay so you've got you, you, here's the scenario you got the people coming in you know these all of these are potential people who may have committed the crime you got the person behind the the uh, the mirror going that's the person now as soon you know if if the if this if law enforcement ran the way churches ran then what would happen is is that as soon as the person identified the perpetrator the police would immediately handcuff the person who identified the perp and say we are arresting you on charges of being judgmental. How dare you point your finger at that person and say he committed a crime or fled the scene? That's just horrible. And then they'd take that person and throw him into the dungeon and then they, they would no bread, no water. They'd just die there. Yeah, that's the way it works. But see, that's how, you know, a lot of Christians operate. You know, I, I get so many emails to the effect of, you're just mean spirit and awful. You're slandering me. <clears throat> no, I'm not. Okay? I'm not doing anything wrong. In fact, I'm doing exactly what Scripture tells me to do regarding exposing those who are teaching false doctrine, rebuking them, and calling them to repentance, and warning you about them. See, I'm not the perpetrator here. It's Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So, all of that being said, let's come back to today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, we, like I've been pointing out, we will be doing... All week long, I think although on Wednesday, uh, we're going to do our normal light edition, although I haven't made that 100% sure. So this depends on on any late entries into the contest, the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And by the way, no wagering, absolutely no wagering. So let me tell you how this operates, okay? All week long, when we're doing our sermon reviews, every sermon will be a bad Easter sermon, and I'm trying to pick sermons that are bad for different reasons, and, um, you know, so they can be any number of different reasons. You, As you listen to the sermon, you'll get why it's going. Today is kind of a study in contrast. I have a very short bad Easter sermon and a longer bad Easter sermon. And the longer bad Easter sermon is from a seeker-driven church in Keller, Texas. And it's in, in, the name of it is Don't Duck Your Dynasty. That's the name of the sermon. And the reason I picked it, is not because Jesus isn't mentioned. Jesus is. The reason I picked it is because Jesus is presented, or is presented, giving us a false and different gospel. So you're going to hear a lot about Jesus, but what he did isn't squaring with what Scripture says. So it's a different gospel. That's the reason I picked it. So, And then the, the first sermon is actually the sermon that was uh, preached by the Reverend Dr. Louis Leon of St. John's Church in Washington, D.C. This was the sermon that President Barack Obama was in attendance to hear on Easter Sunday. And wow, is that thing a train wreck. So those will be our two Easter sermons uh, that will be for your review and, and consideration today. At the end of the week, on Friday, once the program is finished, at the Fighting for the Faith website, all of the contestants in this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest will be listed, and you can vote on them. So that's how that works. And then the voting will remain open for an entire week, um, actually a week plus a couple of days. And then not next Monday, but the Wednesday, uh, the Monday after, we will re- announce the winner 
of our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Finding for the Faith. We have two segments in this first hour, and I hope we can get to both of them. Um, The first is we're going to take a look at Stephen Furtick's um, contradictory statements that he made during this year's Easter Sermon at uh, Elevation Church. And um, his contradictory statements make it clear to me that Furtick is aware of the charge against him of narcissistic eisegesis. And so he's trying to find a way to stave off, blunt, um, you know, uh, protect himself from the charge. And uh, and so he makes statements in the sermon and then contradicts himself. Or actually, he starts off doing the opposite of what he says the Bible's about. Yeah, yeah, I'll just have to play it for you. <laughs> I'm doing a horrible job of explaining. So we're going to be taking a look at Stephen Furtick's contradictory statements from his Easter sermon this year. And what's interesting is, is that his sermon, I listened to it it's in, in its entirety, it's a mixed bag. Um, it starts off horribly, and it ends off kind of okay. Um, you know, Jesus does come into it, and... Um, and his theology is okay, uh, and so you know, as a result of that, he doesn't make it into this year's contest. But I want to play for you the the opening bad parts because it's crazy, and he contradicts himself in the sermon, which is kind of weird. And then, time permitting, I've got a, a news story that I want to get to from the Christian Post, and um, the headline reads: "Revealing Heaven." Episcopal pastor details hundreds of near death experiences and backs Rob Bell. This has to do with the question of who are you going to trust when it comes to telling you what happens when you die? Are you going to trust Christ and his word that would be found in the written word of God? Or are you going to trust an Episcopal pastor who you know, basically has done interviews with people who've had near-death experiences and has come to the conclusion that Rob Bell's theology is the correct theology? Uh-huh. Yeah, so we'll take a look at it. This comes down to the idea of your experience doesn't trump God's word. Plain and simple. So we've got a ton of ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Make yourself comfortable. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And since we're doing a Stephen Furtick update, it requires me to do this. out of that falsetto.
real gospel, heard the real gospel, and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? All right, so Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church fame, who we'll be talking about a couple of times this week, um, at his uh, on his Easter sermon, he actually really contradicted himself. I think he's aware of the fact that the main criticism against him is he preaches about himself from every biblical passage. So he's trying to make an effort to, well, preach about Jesus. Hang on, I better kill this music. All right. And so he's trying to make an effort to, well, fight off this thing. Apparently it's sticking. A lot of people are noting the fact that Stephen Furtick has this funny propensity to turn any passage of Scripture, even the ones about Jesus, into a passage about himself or you or anybody else other than Jesus. And so he engages in what we call here at Fighting for the Faith Narsa Jesus. That would be narcissistic eisegesis, two words squished together. He's the king of the Narsegetes. So he's trying to, well, fix his reputation, if you would. And as, <laughs> But the problem is, is that he's only doing it by claiming, well, let's put it this way. He, he'll say verbally, listen, listen, the Bible's all about Jesus. But then he makes it about himself and you and other people. Okay, let me give you something that's what that's akin to. Have you ever heard of the phrase lip service? Yes, he's doing lip service to the idea that the Bible is about Jesus, although he's making some effort in his sermons to at least weave Jesus and make Jesus the, the head of uh, the, the stories. But in fact, his entire sermon series that he's been working through, Infinite, um, it's this mixed bag. On the one hand, he'll say it's about Jesus, make a big point of it, and a hula baloo about it, and then, and then part of his sermon is always dedicated to making the story about you. And so he's like talking out of both sides of his mouth. It's, well, it's another form of cognitive dissonance. And so here's, in fact, here's an example of a statement that Furtick made from his Easter sermon. So listen in, this is him saying the Bible's about well, Jesus, but then this is totally against what he did in the opening part of his sermon. Listen. Now, if there is one thing we have learned in this series, looking at seven of the greatest stories in all of Scripture, it's that every passage of the Bible on every page, every plot, points to a meta-narrative and a main character that is bigger. It all points to Jesus. All right, so he says it. Okay, now this now the problem is is that he ain't practicing what he preaches here. It all points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Okay, this would be like me saying, you know, listen, you know, I totally think that fornal cabutilating is a sin is a sin and shouldn't be doing it. Okay, yeah, you yeah that fornal cabutilating that's some bad stuff. And then you find out that I'm fornal cabutilating. You know, so <laughs> what about all that talk about you saying fornal cabutilating is wrong? Well, you know, you don't do lip service to a concept, especially you don't do lip service to the idea that the Bible is about Jesus. There's, in fact, 
you can't do lip service to it without being caught because people pay attention and they notice these things. And so let's listen to the first, you know, maybe eight to ten minutes of Stephen Furtick's Easter sermon called Infinite, the greatest story forever told. And see if you can see who he makes the biblical passage of Jesus' resurrection from the Gospel of Mark about. Here's Stephen Furtick. Now I want to read to you from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. I would like to ask you, in the short time we have together today, that as I present the greatest story forever told, that you would not just observe it or think about it or try to remember it, because you may know it already, but just enter into it. And by entering into the elements of this story, I think there are um, new and fresh things God wants to speak to each of us and do inside of each of us today. Uh, quick question. <clears throat> How do I enter into the story that's recorded in the Gospels? How do I enter into it? That statement doesn't make any sense. You remember Gumby? Um, you know, the, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about Monty Python's Gumby. You know that guy? Um, no, I'm not that, that not that 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 Gumby, but Gumby, the little green ball of clay guy, right? Um, you remember he he would he would have this ability to like walk into any book and then be in the story. Um, I'm not Gumby, and neither are you. So when somebody says to me something like, you know, enter into the story, the first question that comes to my mind is. Well, I'm not Gumby. How am I supposed to do that? That doesn't make any sense. How am I supposed to enter into a story that's already occurred, especially a historical narrative? This isn't some fictional tale. This is a historical narrative recording for me things that occurred in real time and space history. We continue. So we'll begin with the text here in Mark's Gospel, verse 1, chapter 16. Bible says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. I want to read a little bit more because the really good part is coming, but I'd like to stop if we're going to, if we're going to call this the greatest story forever told. Um, we got to look at the setting because a great story has to have a great setting. So you could just skip over this part or you could take a look at the specific details of the setting. And on the surface, there doesn't seem to be anything spectacular about the setting. Um, you got some women. Let's hear it for the women. Who are going to <laughs> perform a ritual to embalm the body of Jesus. And um, the Bible says that it was when the Sabbath was over. Now the Sabbath is Saturday. So this is Sunday, Easter Sunday. And Holy Week had started uh, on a Sunday, the Sunday before this Sunday. Now, if you count with me, I want to show you something. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem to be crucified to begin Holy Week on Sunday, his first day. Now let's count. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Six is the number of man in the Bible. Anytime you see it, it's a number of man. It's an incomplete number. Now, this is true. Okay, don't think that uh, Stephen Furtick's going all uh, William Tapley. What he just said is absolutely true. That is correct. The number six in the Bible is the m number of man. 
He's crucified on Friday, silent on Saturday. We've learned in this church that seven is the number of perfection. Complete. This is correct as well. It's like, uh, as I was listening to this to the first time, I was going, all right, somebody sent that boy some theology books. Nice. Okay. And then we get to the number eight. Watch what he does with it. It's subtle, but it's wrong. Completion all throughout the Bible. But then one thing I wanted to tell you this, this Easter day is that eight, anytime you see it in the Bible, is the number of new beginnings. So that might seem like an insignificant... Now, technically, that's, that's right. Um, eight is the number of the new creation. Okay, new beginnings and new creation are two completely different things. Okay, By saying it's the number of new beginnings, he's now going to narcissate the numerology from this gospel text. Let me back it up so that you can hear it. Eight, anytime you see it in the Bible, is the number of new beginnings. So that might seem like an insignificant detail to you, but is it a coincidence? Let me help you out. No. <laughs> that the day they discovered that Jesus was no longer in the tomb was on the first day of the new week, which was the eighth day after he rode into Jerusalem, signifying that our God is a God of new beginnings. Not just a... No, no, no. Wrong. <laughs> signifying that our God is a God of new beginnings? Yeah, that, I mean, seriously. You know what that's like? Okay, let me kind of give you an example of what this is, what <laughs> this is like. Um, y'all familiar with the Olympics, right? You ever watch like the hundred yard dash, right? This is the equivalent of somebody doing the hundred yard dash in competition and getting off the block first, sprinting down, you know, the track and literally being two, three, four, you know, lengths ahead of everybody. Okay. And then literally 10 yards before the finish line. He falls on his face, does a face plant, is both of his feet are in the air, and c just comes to a skidding, careening, crashing halt, and then doesn't even finish. I mean, it's, <laughs> or it's kind of like, you know, if you have a stick shift. I, I love cars with stick shifts, although I don't currently own one. That, that's my, I love the manual transition, uh, transmission. But um, it's like taking your car, you're putting it into first and then starting. Okay. Put the clutch in, put it in second. And then you put the clutch in, put it in third. And then you put the clutch in, and then you put it in reverse. Bad things happen. So, yeah, no. Eight is not the number of new beginnings. It's the number of the new creation, signifying that Jesus is the firstborn of a new creation. Not that that they discovered. Oh wow! On the on the day that so God's a God of new beginnings. Excuse me while I crash my face into the ground. It's a God to be idolized in the past, but a God who is able to make a new beginning today. That okay, gotta back that up. What was that? Hang on. Jerusalem, signifying that our God is a God of new beginnings, not just a God to be idolized in the past, but a God who is able to make a new beginning today. Not just a God who is to be idolized in the past. What is the cash value of that sentence? 
Yeah, you better not be idolizing God in the past. Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, what are you talking about? I believe in the one true, the one true God. If you worship and believe in Him, you can't idolize Him. He, he, an idol is a false god. He's the one true God. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we continue. Hey, that's awesome. Everybody say awesome. The Bible's so cool. But here's something that to me is even more relatable. It says in verse 2 that it was very early on the first day of the week. Very early. If we were reading the Bible in the original language, it was written and we would see specifically it was between 3 and 6 a.m. And the technical term for that is it sucks to be alive time. That's what I call 3 to 6 a.m. Don't look at me all stiff like you never say sucks. It's Easter, but I'm going to... And now Stephen Furtick will launch into a story about his life, telling you who he is really preaching. So apparently that little detail in the Bible, well, that he's going to narcissate himself into the time of the morning when the women went to the tomb. I'm going to talk real. I hate the morning. How many of you are morning people? Raise your hand if you're a morning person. Morning people, raise your hand. I respect you. I honor you. I don't understand you. I have nothing in common with you. If you're the other kind of person, like me, raise your hand. If you are this kind of person, if you are, I will kill the person who just raised their hand. I will cut them and watch them bleed out if they look at me the wrong way before I've had my appropriate caffeine intake. Raise your hand if that's you. That's me. You know, one of the ways I knew that me and Holly were meant to be together was after our wedding night. And how does your wedding night factor into the story of the empty tomb? I'm just not making that connection in my mind here. I mean, I'm going to leave that alone. But the, the morning, I didn't mean for it to dip to that place real quick. Y'all are some real horrible people, what you were just thinking. But the, but the day after our wedding, we had to buy one of those plane tickets. We stayed locally after the wedding. You know how tired you are after, after the planning of the wedding, all of the details. Shut up. Let me tell this story. So we wake up and we had to buy one of those plane tickets to go cr- catch the cruise ship where when you can't afford to buy a real plane ticket where you tell them what time you want to leave, you got to tell them how much you'll pay. And then after you pay, you click the button. It's like you're leave, your, your plane is leaving at kill yourself a clock in the morning. That's what time your plane is leaving. So we found out we had to, we had to get up at like four or five in the morning and we had both been awake. This is how I knew she was the one for me. I mean, there are many ways I knew because she's beautiful and godly and sexy and all that. But one of the ways that God, he sure does like talking about himself, doesn't he? I confirmed it is we had both been awake for 20 minutes. Neither of us has spoken a word to one another. And after 20 minutes, she breaks the silence. She looks at me. She goes, you don't like to talk in the morning either? And I said, no, I hate it. In fact, this conversation right now is kind of getting on my nerves. If you want to know the truth about it. She looked at me. She said, you are my soulmate. And we knew, we knew we were meant for each other because, because three to 6 a.m. That's the worst possible time is here's why it's too late to go back to bed. But God knows it is too early for me to be awake. Let me get an amen from the second group one more time. 
Why did God choose to send these women out on their journey to discover that the body of Jesus was no longer in the tomb between 3 and 6 a.m.? Here's what I think he was saying. It's the end of one day and the beginning of another. (laughs) This is almost like a William Tapley-esque detail. Um, okay. And trust me when I tell you, it's going to get worse. It's going to get like way worse. Let me try it another way. You didn't respond like I wanted you to. Only our God is so skilled at writing a story that he can make the conclusion, the introduction. What? Hmm. Huh? Okay. And that's what he does in our lives. He does. Because the women went to the tomb between 3 and 6 in the morning. That means that God is capable of making the conclusion, the introduction, and that's what he does in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, notice anything wrong with that? Like, you know, it's not, it's not even lucid. That's like one of those sentences like, Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. It doesn't make any sense. And everyone's sitting there going, oh, we got to tweet that out. I mean, you tweet that out and your family members who follow you on Twitter are going to think, uh-oh, you know, Becky's been hitting the bong again. And see, you may be at 3 a.m. in your life today. Uh, you may be buried. In- I may be at 3 a.m. in my life today. Listen, I was at 3 a.m. earlier today at 3 a.m. And you know what I remember about 3? Nothing. I was asleep. (sighs) (laughs) Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to save you from 3 a.m.-ness. What does this mean? In the ground of some circumstances. Maybe you lost a relationship already this year. Maybe somebody left you that was supposed to never leave you. So if somebody leaves you, it's 3 a.m. in the morning? So so now we've completely allegorized the time when the women went to the tomb. And we've narcissistically stuck ourselves into the story now. Because apparently, I mean, I had no idea. That because the women went to the tomb sometime between 3 in the morning and 6 in the morning, that that means that God is about to save me from the 3 a.m.s in my life. What is this? Maybe somebody left you because of a physical illness and they had no choice. Or, or maybe you lost a job. Maybe, maybe you've lost some time. Maybe you've lost some strength. Maybe you've lost some hope. Maybe you lost an opportunity. Maybe you blew something. But we're in the greatest story forever told. When at 3 a.m., when you're stumbling in the darkness, wondering, is there any hope to this? God turns that situation into a resurrection. Oh, brother, seriously, what (laughs) didn't he say? I played the quote for you that the Bible is about Jesus. Is he making this text about Jesus? Not at all. So now we're finding every little errant detail, William Tapley style at that. I mean, seriously, uh, uh, Steve, do you actually like watch sporting events and look for numerological prophetic significance the way that William Tapley does? This is preposterous. This is absolutely hermeneutically absurd. It's not even lucid thinking. 
Isn't he good? In fact, when Jesus said on the cross in John 19.30, when he stretched his arms and they gave him vinegar to drink and they had put a robe on him and mocked him because he was the king of the Jews and they twisted a crown of thorn on his head and then they, they, they gave him a sponge and as he drank the vinegar, he uttered these words. He said, it is finished. He wasn't saying he was done. He was making an announcement. Everything that needs to be accomplished has been accomplished. And now my saving work can begin because God. Now my saving work can begin. Is this opposite day? Have you ever played that game with your kids where every day is opposite day? So, you know, you you know, my kids would do this to me. It drove me nuts when they would play opposite day with me. It's like they come home from school and my son would punch me on the arm and go, I hate you, dad. And I go, what? And he go, oh, it's opposite day. Oh, okay. I get it. Maybe this is like Stephen Furtick's way of playing a game with us. It's opposite day. You know, because when Jesus is, has his arm stretched out on the cross and he cries out to tell us, die, it is finished. That means that his saving work can begin. <laughs> so endings are beginnings and beginnings are endings and up is down and down is up because of the three AMs in your life that you can be rescued from because the women went to go put spices on Jesus at the 3 a.m. or somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. We, we're not sure which, probably closer to 6 and 3, but, you know, it's hard to tell. <laughs> Turns endings into new beginnings. But that's not my sermon. That's just the setting. I, okay, so that's not a sermon. That's just the setting. Can't wait to hear the sermon. We continue. I have to get that out of the way because now we got to get to the action. I mean, it's no good to have a great setting if you don't have some action. We need some action. We need some action. The ceiling fan is falling. Get out while you can. We need some action. Verse 2 says, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, here comes a conflict. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Every great story needs a great conflict. You don't want to watch a movie about a guy who... Okay, no, 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 serious. Okay, um, the story, you know, that little detail of the, about the stone being there, that is not the conflict. Okay, yeah, far, 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 far from it. That's just an incidental detail, okay? Um, the, you know, if we're going to talk about the setting and the conflict and stuff like that, you have to roll back up into the bigger thing. What's the conflict that the Gospels are addressing? Answer, it's the conflict that began in the Garden of Eden. The conflict between Satan and God that we've now found ourselves caught up in the middle of because we rebelled against God. And so the conflict has to do with God coming to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, and now crucified by us. Okay? If in fact, you know, listen, those people who say things to the effect of it's those Jews who killed Jesus or it's the Romans who killed Jews Jesus. None of that's true. We killed you did it. It's, your sin is why he's on the cross. 
So don't be going and blaming other people. So the conflict itself has come to a conclusion with Christ's death on the cross because his death is his victory over Satan, death, and the devil, which is which is then seen with Christ's victorious resurrection from the grave. That's what's going on here. So all you do, you're taking a little detail here at the end of the Gospel of Mark. You know, oh, there's a stone in front of his uh, tomb. No kidding. There, <laughs> that's how they did it back then, and there was a good reason why you would do such a thing. And it has something to do with making it so that a body can decompose in peace. Um, you know, it would take about a year. I mean, in fact, what they would do back then during the Second, uh, second Temple period, they would take a dead body, lay it out on a stone slab inside of a, of a, of a, of a basically rock-cut, a rock-hewn tomb. The body would stay there for about a year, maybe a little bit longer, and do its decomposing work. And the stone there protected the body from being, you know, eaten by, you know, animals and, you know, rogue scavengers and things like that. So it can decompose in peace. And it also protected, uh, provided a a barrier for odor, okay? Because decomposing human bodies, yeah, there's probably few smells that are worse on planet Earth than that. So... This idea that the stone is in front of the tomb, that is not conflict. And the fact that you think that's conflict tells me you don't understand anything about how stories work. Let me back this up. We continue. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Every great story needs a great conflict. You don't want to watch a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo, so he buys one. Need some conflict. Need the Volvo to catch on fire. He's rolling down the street, you know. I need some some action. So here's the conflict of the story. Who will roll the tomb away? Now this this tomb we're talking about is the stone set in front of the door of the cave where they laid the body of Jesus. Weighs about 250 pounds. Much too large for these women to move. Now, if it had been some men, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have made a plan. At least these women are planning. They're on their way. Somebody's got to move this stone. Who's going to do it? Let's start talking about it. Let's start figuring out how this is going to go down. Because they're on their way to do something. They're going to anoint the body of Jesus. They got oil and spices and they got a job to do. But who's going to roll the stone? So now they're doing the thing that they set out to do, but they've got a, an obstacle in the way that is bigger than them. Uh, I wonder who. I wonder who has a stone standing in your way today. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, this is just the cliche, narcissistic Bible twisting of the, uh, of the resurrection. Uh, how many of you have a stone today that you need rolled away? Gag me. Serious. I mean, this is so vapid and silly, it's not even funny. A stone you can't move. A conflict you can't resolve, a relationship you can't restore. Who will roll the stone away? It's a good question, you know? Yeah, because, you know, I, I need to experience a resurrection for my dreams, man. Because, you know, I, I've always wanted to be a hand model and, 
and there's a stone in my way that makes it so I can't be a hand model. And so I need Jesus to come and roll the stone away and resurrect my dead dream. <laughs> you came to church. You, you want to live for God. You want more passion in your walk with God. But there's this thing in my way. I can't move. There's this addiction that I've always dealt with. It's too big for me. Been in my family for a long time. Who's going to break this addiction? This addiction to, to, to drugs. So he's literally narcissizing the stone. Drugs, alcohol, eating, gossip. This depression, this sadness, this sorrow. Who's going to move it away? And so now these women have met an immovable object. And it's too big for them. And it's too strong for them. But watch verse 4. Critical climax of the plot of the story scripture says when they looked up everybody said look up when they looked up they saw that the stone which was very large had been rolled away yeah and the reason for that was because jesus had been raised from the grave the stone doesn't signify anything i mean absolutely Nothing in your life. Zip, zero, nada, nunca, nadie, low. It doesn't matter what language you're speaking. Not one thing is signified in your life as a result of the fact that the stone was rolled away. This is the historical account, the narrative of Jesus's real in time and space resurrection from the grave. The stone doesn't symbolize nothing about you or me. So here's what we're saying. God got to the tomb before they did and did what they couldn't do. And if there's something you can't do that's keeping you from God today, you need to know that he already moved the barrier. So here's the word. Uh, really? So I need to know that God's already moved the barrier. Because if you came to church today and you got a stone in front of you, man, that's keeping you from you know, experiencing some things, uh, then you need to know that the stone, well, God already showed up, man. And, and, uh, yeah, that stone totally gone, man. Cause you know, like in Mark 16, man, just, just read the passage and you'll see, dude, don't let a barrier keep you from coming to God that God himself has already removed. He's already broken the power of addiction. If you'll trust him. Now, if you go trying to move the stone on your own, you can't move it. But Only if you're a woman. You just said the guys wouldn't have thought about something like that. Dudes could have moved it. But what you could never do in a lifetime of trying, God wants you to trust that he's already done. Here it is. He's already made a way. He's already provided deliverance. He's already stronger than your struggle. And the stone was rolled away. Why aren't you happy? This means you don't have to stay at a distance from God's purpose for your life because of something you can't accomplish. Really, you got all of that. I mean, it was, you got all of that from, like, the fact that the women went between three and six, and there was a stone, and it was already moved. Talk about missing the forest because of a tree. Heaven answers your I can't with a resounding God did. Uh-huh, right. And you got all that from a stone. Right. This is rock theology. Ooh, that's Easter. 
No, it's not. That's Easter. No, really, it it has nothing to do with Easter. Easter's not about stones being rolled away. It's about Christ being raised from the grave. And when they looked up, they saw it. Oh, the thing we were so worried about not being able to do has already been done. The thing we could never move, the thing we could never break, the chains we could never escape have already been unlocked by the power of God. This is utter nonsense. Now, just a few minutes after that portion of this, quote, sermon, that's when he made said these words. Listen again. Now, if there is one thing we have learned in this series, looking at seven of the greatest stories in all of Scripture, it's that every passage of the Bible on every page, every plot, points to a meta-narrative and a main character that is bigger. It all points to Jesus. Right. And you just pointed me to the time of day and made it about me. You pointed to a a rock, a stone that had been rolled away and made it about me. Good night. So even though on the one hand, Stephen Furtick is aware of the criticism that he's receiving for his narcissistic eisegesis, I don't think he can help himself. I mean, this is almost like listening to a crazy person. I mean, this is so non-lucid and completely and utterly contradictory that I fear that the folks at Elevation Church, having prolonged exposure to this kind of nonsense where black is white, up is down, new is old, and you know, all that, and what he, what he says, you know, I, it's all about Jesus and then makes it all about you, that at the end of this, what we're, what we're literally seeing happen is the ability for people to, well, lose the ability to no longer think cognitively. This prolonged exposure to a Stephen Furtick uh, sermon or sermons could cause you to inadvertently become spiritually lobotomized. Good night. It's all it's all about Jesus, but then it's all about me. Huh? Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense in a world upside down, inside out, and where up is and up is down, and down is up. You know, as for me, I'm just going to go with the clear teaching of the Word of God. Those were little minor details to set up the the big detail that Jesus actually rose from the grave. That's what that is. That yeah, that stone that was not a conflict that somehow symbolizes anything in your life. And who cares what time in the morning it went? It again, it doesn't symbolize anything in your life. They are the ones who lived this. That's why they recorded it. <sighs> anyway, um. We are up on our first and only break today. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to officially launch uh, this year's uh, 2013 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous... So that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Christ-centered, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try.
You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We'll get to the Revealing Heaven piece tomorrow, but we've got to start our worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest here shortly. So let me remind you, this is listener-supported radio. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the buttons. It's like donate or join our crew and support us. Can't keep doing this without you. Don't have time to do the full thing. Let's get right to it. we got a lot of ground to cover. Here we go. good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today we have two contestants for our annual Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Contestant numero uno, the Reverend Dr. Louis Leon, St. John's Church, Episcopal Church, Washington, D.C. His sermon is simply entitled, Easter. After that, we will be heading down to Keller, Texas, to listen to a 
sermon, Easter sermon, by Brandon Thomas of Keystone Church entitled, Don't Duck Your Dynasty. Now, each one is chosen for very different reasons. I'm trying to put different types of bad sermons into the mix this year. And the first one, it's going to be obvious. <laughs> it's, yeah, you're going to find out why it, yeah, just very quickly. The second one, not so obvious. You have to listen to the details. This one, Jesus is mentioned. The resurrection is mentioned. But the problem is it's all mentioned in the context of a false, self-centered, narcissistic, purpose-driven gospel that isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, with that, let me kill the music. And without any further ado, here is contestant number one, the Reverend Dr. Lewis Leon. This was, and by the way, Barack Obama, the President of the United States, was in attendance for this Easter sermon, and it's simply entitled Easter. Here we go. And Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. My first word to you today is welcome. Welcome to St. John's Church on an Easter day. We'd like for it to be a little sunnier, but we don't get everything we want. If you're visiting our congregation today, let me tell you that we are you increase our joy while your presence here among us. If you're here because your parents made you come to church today, that's all right. We appreciate you coming with your parents. It's good to build up political capital with them. You're going to need it somewhere along the line. If you came today because you've been invited to a great Easter lunch after this and you figured you better show up in church uh, before you go to somebody's house for lunch, welcome to St. John's Church. I promised myself that I wouldn't say anything about uh, baseball today, but uh, I, uh, I can't. Uh, our, our drummer, Tom Malloy, back in the back is a Yankees fan. And the last time I said that I hated the Yankees, I got into a lot of trouble. So today I'm not going to say that I hate the Yankees. And it's hard to hate a team that uh, is falling apart, you know. <laughs> A-Rod's got a bum knee. Jeter's on the DL. Teixeira's got a bad, uh, bad wrist, I think. Uh, Granderson can't run. And their closer is about 55 years old. So I figure, you know, why bash on people while they're down? But let's get on to what uh, this... <laughs> Great way to start an Easter sermon talking about the Yankees. Right, because, you know, the first thing comes to my mind when I think about, you know, the resurrection text is the Yankees. That's the first thing. Today is all about, which is about the resurrection, and we have the story from John's Gospel today. And just a couple of things that need to be mentioned. Mary Magdalene is the one that shows up. She looks in there. The tomb is empty. You've read, we've had the passage read. So she goes back home, and she gets Simon Peter, one of the disciples, and the beloved disciple, who is never mentioned in John's Gospel, by the way, but later on the church calls him John, presumably so that we could call church of St. John's Church. I'm not sure why, but at any rate, he's the beloved disciple. We never learn his name. And they come back with Mary Magdalene, the beloved disciple, and Simon Peter. They peer into the tomb. They look in there. The first one to look at Simon Peter, and he sees, and he comes back out. Then the beloved disciple goes back in, 
he sees, it says that he believed. And then, oddly enough, they both go home. And I like that particular passage because it seems to me that Simon Peter doesn't get it at first. And it's good for us, isn't it? We don't have to get it all right the first time. We don't have to understand it completely the first time. I say this every Easter Sunday, and I mean it with all my heart, that what God wants from each and every one of us is to believe in as much of God as we can at a given moment, and that that's good enough. What? <laughs> what on earth? Yeah, I told you. It was, it, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. Because it's honest and it's true. And then to work on it. Keep working on your faith. To keep working. To- yeah, just yeah, believe in as much of God as you can. Yeah, just keep working on it. That's what the Easter story is all about. Yeah, yeah. To see what else can you understand. It's all right to have doubts. And we find that Simon Peter goes home and the Bible says he doesn't believe. He just goes home. And that's all right. That Mary Magdalene's the one that comes back. And Mary Magdalene comes back in and all of a sudden she's encountered she's encountered with two angels who call out her name. And all she can say is, Where'd you all, what did you all do with the body? Uh, I need the body back. I need to give him a decent burial. Bring back the body. Would you please bring back the body? Then the angels disappear. When the angels... Bring back, bring back, bring back the body. To... Angels disappear. Another one stands there. This guy, he's standing there and he's got apparently a, a tool, a, a tool for gardening. She thinks it's the gardener. And she looks and he says, what have you done with the body? And the gardener turns to her and he says to her, Mary... Mary, it's not a casual detail then that she responds by saying Rabuni, which means teacher, a sign of affection, a sign of respect. And then what I find very, very odd is that Jesus then replies to Mary when she says Rabbi to him, replies by, don't hold on to me. Of course, and there's nothing in the Bible that says that she's holding on to him. She hasn't grasped him. But we read in the Bible, it says, don't hold on to me. I don't remember reading any movement in there, any clutching part of, on, on Mary's part. But I say to you that that word, Rabboni, reaches out and tries to restrict Jesus into what he's become. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. So the, it don't, if you say the word Rabboni to the uh, the resurrected Jesus, well, then you're restricting him. Uh-huh. The old title that Mary is trying to use is to define the new in the terms of old familiar comforts. What? It wants Jesus to return to establish relationships and friendships the way that they are known. And the title implies that Jesus... She wants Jesus to be the same Jesus, just as we want Jesus to be the same Jesus as we know him, teacher, prophet, carpenter, wise person. Whatever you want to call Jesus in the earthly life, you call him Rabuni. Uh-huh. Right. Were you comparing sermon notes with Stephen Furtick? Because this is not lucid either. You, you, you could talk about has bodily resurrection from the grave, how he died on the cross for our sins, how we need to repent of our sin and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, how his resurrection from the grave assures our resurrection, you know, things like that. I mean, the things we talked to, you know, all the different good Easter messages we heard last week talked about, you know, 
Where are you getting this? You know how it is. Sometimes we try to make cardboard cutouts of us and of other people, and we fail to see how people have changed in front of us. There's a wonderful story I once read, which is about T.S. Eliot, the poet. And T.S. Eliot was a very formal man, and this was at a very fancy dinner at one of our fancy cities. And there he was speaking to a young woman of high society who had been placed next to him, and she had been chosen to sit next to him because of her intelligence, charm, grace, and humor. During the evening, the story goes that Mr. Eliot took to her with great comfort, and as the night went on, he became downright convivial. Their exchanges became more lively, but the woman continued to call him Mr. Eliot. As the night wore on, unexpectedly, this very formal man leans over to the woman and says to her, You can call me Tom. At which point, the woman from high society put her hand to her throat and exclaimed, Oh no, I couldn't do that. You were required reading. You know, as funny as that joke is, I have no clue what it has to do with the text. And plus, I would hesitate to favorably cite stories regarding T.S. Eliot, famous, I mean, famous fascist. And I tell you that story because how easy it is to make cardboard cutouts of people. We understand Mary well. I understand Mary well. We want to cling to the things the way they are, the way things used to be. We want to go back to things before, before our children grew up, before our husband died or our wife got sick, before a friendship soured, before our bodies began to sag and our energies to dwindle, before tragedy and heartache turned us bitter, before the world changed and roles changed and families changed, and national powers change before work got difficult and faith got confused and life turned more confusing. If we can't go back, then at least let us live in the pain of the loss of the known world because then we'll be able to live with a familiar ache of nostalgia because if the ache is there, the past is there alive also. For some people, it may not be that before word, It may be if only, if only the child had lived, if only I had followed my dream, if only I had accepted that job, if only I had tried one more time, if only life could have dealt me a better deck. When we dwell on the past, when we dwell on the if onlys of life, we forget that God addresses us in the now. Jesus' response to Mary. God addresses us in the now. Oh, this is just unbelievably bad and just vapid. And I think that Jesus' response to us is gentle, but it is firm. Jesus says, don't hang on to me. Don't hang on to the past. Don't hang on to the way things were. I hear all the time the expression, the good old days. Well, the good old days, we forget, may have been good for some, but they weren't good for everybody. You can't go back. You can't live in the past. 
It drives me crazy when the captains of the religious right are always calling people back, never forward, forgetting that we are called to be a pilgrim people who have agreed never to arrive. That's true to our faith. The captains of the religious right are always calling us back, back, back. Um, what? Well, I've agreed to be a pilgrim never to arrive? Where'd you get that? For blacks to be back in the back of the bus, for women to be back in the kitchen, for gays to be in the closet, and for great immigrants to be on their side of the border. And would you and I understand this, that when Jesus says, you can't hang on to me, he says, you know, it's not about the past, it's not about the before, it's not about the way things were, but about the way things can be in the now. Well, no wonder Obama attended this Easter service. Now, what's interesting about our gospel reading today, if we can move forward very quickly, is that Mary leaves after Jesus says, don't hang on to me. And she goes back and meets the disciples and she says to them, I have seen the Lord. She doesn't say, I have seen the rabbi. She gets it. She sees differently. She understands differently. She... It's not as if they didn't call Jesus Lord before that time. She recognizes that life has changed and that we're invited and she's invited to see our world completely different. The message of Easter is the proclamation of victory, the victory of powerful love over loveless power. And I think that what... The victory of what over what? What passage are you getting this from? What Mary has been offered on Easter Day... This is, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, Stephen Furtick is guilty of Jesus, right? This is liberal Jesus. with Jesus, you know, this is be inserting into the biblical text liberalism. Good night is this horrible. In the story of John is Easter vision. And you and I are offered Easter vision, the ability to see things and realize... I'm offered Easter vision. Mm-hmm. Is that like, you know, Panavision, Technicolor, you know, things like that? ...reality differently. Let me be clear about Easter vision. It has nothing to do with sight. It has everything to do with recognition. Recognition. The ability to recognize, the ability to see the presence of the risen Christ in our lives... That's what God is offering each and every one of us today. And I am convinced of this, that if you accept the invitation by God to adopt a pair of new bifocals that will give you Easter vision, those, that Easter vision will allow you to see the whole world in a very different and wonderful way. And I believe that if we adopt Easter vision, if we can just accept it, we will be, see, we'll be able to see that there is no pain so deep that there can be no relief in life. With Easter vision, we can recognize that there is no loneliness so absolute that there can be no friend. We're invited to recognize that there is no injustice so insidious that there can be no truth. No war so fierce that there can be no peace. No hate so deep that we can find no new love. No despair so profound that we can't have hope. No enemy so bitter that they can't become a friend. 
many years ago, back in the 1980s, I went to a training by the Industrial Areas Foundation, which is a community organizing thing. And the guy who was the head of it one time said to me, you remember this, Luis, in your life, and this is true about the gospel. He said, there are no permanent enemies and no permanent allies. And when I first heard that, I said, you're crazy. You mean I can't hold on to my grudges until the day that I die? (laughs) You mean that there's no opportunity for change in my relationship with the people who have damaged me in the past? You mean that I can't see them differently? And he said, no permanent enemies, no permanent allies. And he said, you know, that's the way that we can live to the best of our ability, Jesus' injunction to love your enemy because you're giving them a new chance for a new relationship. With this Easter vision, you and I know that there is more love, there is more mercy, there is more forgiveness in God than there is sin in us. With Easter vision, you know that there is no fear so deep that there can be no calm. And with Easter vision, you and I both know that there is no death so final that there can be no resurrection. Because with Easter vision, we can recognize that death is only a horizon, and a horizon is nothing except the limits of our sight. And with Easter vision you can see more than the bare eye can see. The resurrection we proclaim today promises our resurrection now. For Christ has risen for us to put love in our hearts, decent thoughts in our heads, forgiveness in our spirit, a little more eye. Forgiveness in our spirit? I thought he died on the cross for our sins and rose again for our justification so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Got any of that? Iron in our spines and recognition in our hearts. Resurrection today, we proclaim, has overcome crucifixion. Forgiveness has overcome sin. Hope has overcome injustice. New life has overcome death. What's your part in all of this? Are you going to continue to see things with Good Friday eyes? Or will you accept the invitation from our gospeler today to see things with Easter vision, recognizing reality in a different and new and wonderful way? Today, the choice is yours. Jesus Christ is risen today. That's the proclamation. May God bless you with Easter vision, now and forever. Amen. All right. I should name that. In fact, I'll probably name it for the podcast, Easter vision. Um, (laughs) Man, that was pretty awful. Completely missed the entire point of the um, resurrection and... You know, throw in some good liberal social justice concepts for for good measure, for good measure. All right, sermon number two. Sermon number two comes to us, like I said earlier, from a a Keystone uh, Church in Keller, Texas, uh, Brandon Thomas presiding. Now, this is very different than the sermon that you just listened to. In fact, you could almost put it, you know, say it's almost polar opposite. But you got to listen carefully to this one because 
the more dangerous heresies are the ones that are harder to detect. And what you're listening for is to see if Brandon Thomas is preaching the biblical gospel or if he is preaching a different gospel. Because remember, there is an anathema that falls on those who preach a different gospel. You can find that anathema in uh, Galatians chapter 1, you know, in the first few verses, actually, like 6, 7, 8, somewhere in there, where Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should come to you and preach a gospel other than the one you've already heard or the one we preached, let him be anathema. That means damned. So, Without any further ado, here is the Easter sermon from Keystone Church entitled, Don't Duck Your Dynasty. Here we go. Well, happy Easter, Keystone Church. It's incredible. And and I want to welcome just a few people right now. I want to welcome everybody at North Fort Worth. We're one campus. I mean, one church with two campuses. Let's welcome everybody from North Fort Worth. <clears throat> And uh, and I was just hanging out with uh, with a with a really crazy crew. They're they're rambunctious and they're having a good old time. Let's give it up for everybody in our overflow. And there's a ton of you. Let's give it up for everybody in our overflow. You know, I'm just so overwhelmed by God's goodness already this Easter that that I was just losing my mind out there meeting people in overflow. And I said to one of them, I said, uh, "Merry Christmas." I've just lost it. I mean, what's wrong with me? Uh, it is not Christmas. It's Easter. Happy Easter. And uh, above all, let, let, me just, let me just take a moment. In our overflow, North Fort Worth, and here uh, in this room right now here at Keller, let's just welcome all of our guests. Let's give it up. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to Keystone Church. And, uh, and while we're clapping, let's give it up for the volunteers. Took hundreds of volunteers to make this thing happen. But you know, we are here for one person only. And uh, Keystone Church, it's all about one name. Uh, he is the name above every other name. There's a lot of big names in your life. You know, there's a lot of big names in your life. But the name above every single other name is that of Jesus Christ. Could Keystone Church, could we give it bigger than anything else up for our Lord and Savior, the crucified and risen Christ our Lord. Let's give it up for Jesus Christ this Easter. Come on. Yeah. Good. Well, it was awful nice of them to give Jesus, you know, a high five, you know, a standing O. I mean, I don't, I don't think he got a standing O, but he did get a good round of applause. Way to go, Jesus. Yeah, that was an awesome trick you did on Easter, that's some good stuff right there. Way to go. Thanks, Jesus. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that uh, many of us came upon the invitation of a friend, or maybe you got the huge, gigantic poster in the mail. You're like, man, that this church does not want to be ignored, you know. Uh, perhaps uh, you were at, uh, driving up and down 1709, or you're in Alliance, or out at Roanoke, and uh, you saw the bobblehead guys, the Doug Dynasty bobblehead guys. You're like, what kind of church does bobbleheads? Human bobbleheads. Or you, maybe you're at an event. You're at uh, in Grapevine or or up at uh, again in Alliance Town Center or whatever. And you saw the dancing bunnies. And uh, you know the dancing bunnies were cool. Uh, it, it was it was it was insane. These bearded guys out there dancing around, having a good time. A little disturbing. 
but so cool. I love it. I love it. And, and and the coolest part was just bringing joy, you know, just bringing joy to the community, having fun, you know, just having so much fun in the community and seeing the smiles on the kids' faces as they took pictures with these guys. And, and there was so much fun. But here's the key. The key was is we brought joy to the community with creativity and just having fun and making fun of ourselves and just having a blast. As we brought joy to the community with those bunnies and bobbleheads and all that, what we're doing is we're inviting thousands of people into a space where they can hear that the crucified and risen Christ is Lord. As we are creative, as we do creative series, as we do creativity, what we're all about ultimately is the name above all names. And that is the timeless truth that the crucified and risen Christ is is Lord. And today we're launching a series. Now we're going to just, one of the things I want you to ask also along the way, aside from paying attention to see if the details of the gospel that Brandon Thomas preaches is the biblical gospel. Just ask yourself, did Brandon Thomas and the creative team over there at uh, Keystone church in Keller, Texas, did they spend as much, if not more time making sure that God's word was rightly handled during the sermon as they did in putting in all the effort for their marketing effort and their creativity to draw attention to themselves for this Easter service. Think about it. We continue. Don't duck your dynasty. Now, has anybody seen the show Duck Dynasty? Raise your hand if you're into that. Do you like it? Do you like the show? Yeah, it's a great show. And, uh, <clears throat> and if you're into that show then you know it's about a family. It's about a family that is a bearded family and and a bunch of guys that have these big, long beards, and they're into beards, they're into camo, they're into uh, hunting and guns and eating squirrels from their backyard. They're a whole lot of country and a little bit of crazy, you know? They're into donuts and sweet tea, and you just put all that together and you have a hit television show where millions of people are tuning in. And I, for one, <clears throat> am pumped about it. Absolutely love it. Now, are, is there- So let me see if I have this straight. The, uh, the big draw for your Easter service was Duck Dynasty, not the crucified and risen Jesus. Got it. Anybody in the house who is a duck hunter? I've got something for you. So you want to raise your hand right now. If you're a duck hunter, raise it up. Come on, come on, come on. We've got a duck commander duck call for you in every one of our services here. We've got a duck. There we go. We've got a duck commander duck call. And if you feel left out, uh, if, if you'd like a camo hat, we've got duck commander camo hat for the girl, for a girl and for a guy. And in our overflow, we've got duck commander hat. So if you like that, you know, if you just, you want that? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. See, now, don't tell me that I never gave you anything, except for the hundreds of you that, that just got nothing. But anyway, <laughs> no, we're just having fun. And, and it's about, a, it's about a, a, a series of people that are about all those things, camo and, and, and hunting and all of that. But what you find out at the end of every episode is that their dynasty is not centered around ducks. Their dynasty isn't centered around ducks at all. Actually, what you find out is they gather around the the kitchen table or whatever, and they sit there and they have a family meal together. What you learn real quick is that their life, their dynasty is centered not around ducks, but around their faith in Jesus Christ. 
I, for one, am so excited to see a show that portrays people who love God and love Jesus. I think we ought to get behind it. I think I'm so excited, so excited to see the success of a family that's built on faith actually sharing that to millions of people over television. I think God tune in. It's a really good deal. But here's the thing. As we begin to think about this Easter, one of the things that just just deposited on my heart, I mean, just landed on my heart, was this thought. Now, notice the deposit on his heart comment implies that God was doing the depositing. So whatever it is you're about to hear next, don't challenge it because God himself put it on the heart of Brandon Thomas. Fuck your dynasty. Now, when I say the word dynasty, what I really mean, if you want to say dynasty, you could also say the word destiny. You see, your dynasty is your destiny. And ultimately, so the big punchline for this sermon is don't duck your dynasty, which means don't duck your destiny. Right. Let me back this up. As we begin to think about this Easter, one of the things that just just deposited on my heart, I mean, just landed on my heart, was this thought, don't duck your dynasty. Now, when I say the word dynasty, what I really mean, if you want to say dynasty, you could also say the word destiny. You see, your dynasty is your destiny. And ultimately, destiny, dynasty, it all comes down to answering this big question in your life. Where am I going? At some point in your life, we all must answer the deep question, where is my life headed? And maybe you don't ask that question every single day, but there are always defining moments in everyone's life. So you mean heaven and hell, is that what you mean? Where you ask yourself, where am I headed? Sometimes you ask yourself that question whenever you're in stress or under duress, whenever you're in pain. Uh, We have many, many people who come to Keystone Church one signature away from divorce, and they're asking the question, where's this marriage headed? Will it even be here six months from now? Will we even have a marriage one year from now? It's been our pleasure to help hundreds of marriages here at Keystone Church. We see people who, who are really hurting and having a hard time with parenting. You're asking the question. So you're not talking about where am I going like in, you know, eternal thing. Where am I heading in my marriage, in my relationships, in my parenting? Ah. Question. Hey, where where are these kids going? I mean, what's happening here with the kids? Uh, uh, what what What's happening today that's going to impact them tomorrow? Don't you think it would be wise to talk about eternal destinations on Easter Sunday? I mean, it... I mean, a lot of people are there in church that normally aren't there. Might be a great opportunity. They're a captive audience. Are you afraid they're going to run out of the room screaming if you talk about heaven and hell? Tomorrow, and are we headed in the right direction with our kids? I mean, I had the picture in my head of it would always be yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. I actually thought they'd do that. And, and, and here's the thing. You know, we work so hard to build up discipline and all that. And then what happens when your kid starts rebelling? How do you handle that? You're forced to ask the question. Or maybe you're ill and you deal with chronic pain or just you're, you're just sideswiped with a serious illness. Can I ask the obvious question? What on earth does this have to do with Jesus' resurrection? 
Through all of these various things, you're forced to ask yourself, loss of a job, you're forced to ask yourself, man, where am I headed? And am I on the right path? We say, am I really happy? What you're saying is, am I going the right direction? And see, this deep-seated question is really asking, do I have a correct destiny? Do I have a true dynasty in front of me? Because see, today's Today's decisions will impact your tomorrow destiny. Just just lock onto that. Today's decisions will shape your tomorrow destiny. And today, Easter weekend, right now, we're going to give you an opportunity to make a life-changing decision, a series of decisions that'll change you forever because are you selling timeshares and make a life-changing decision? Because the way you live your life today, the decisions you make today will shape your tomorrow destiny. We're going to give you an opportunity at the end of our service, for example, to begin a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to walk you through a, a simple prayer to God. Maybe it's the first time you've ever prayed to him and meant it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord and cross the line of faith and begin a new walk with Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an opportunity to that at the end of our service. And after you pray with me, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand and say, with heads bowed and eyes closed, that was me. That was me. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a life-changing decision. Because, see, that decision, today's decision, will impact your tomorrow destiny. And I'm talking about eternity. If you make the decision to trust Christ for your life, then you can have the security that when you close your eyes on trust him for my life so that I can have a good destiny. Let me read from uh, the gospel of Luke chapter 24. This is post resurrection. Okay. Um, Luke 24 verse 45. Then he, Jesus opened their minds Uh, so that they could understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus says the message is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you another passage. Um, Jesus says in John chapter 3, starting at verse 3, Jesus answered him. This is Nicodemus. Let me go to verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. Born again, born from above, is being born from above equivalent to, or does it happen when you make a decision to 
experience God's destiny or dynasty for you? Important question to ask while listening to this sermon. Let me uh, let me continue, though, with Jesus. Uh, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, well, how, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony, for if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended uh, from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, the reason I pointed that out, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins, believe in him for what? A dynasty? Is that what we are to believe in Jesus for? Uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice here, Jesus is talking about darkness, light, wicked deeds, and things of that nature. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. John then ends chapter 3 with this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. So, if you're going to have an evangelism event as a result of all this marketing for an Easter service, you better make sure that you're preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your wicked deeds. And you might need to mention the wrath of God, like the Apostle John did, how all who do not believe remain under the wrath of God. Now, let's get back to our, quote, sermon to see where Brandon Thomas, uh, well, goes with this thing. On this earth, you will open your eyes in the presence of God. Today's decision will shape your tomorrow destiny, but not just for your eternity, but for your abundant life. Today, as you choose... To embrace God's design for your life, God's plan for your life, it'll shape and change the way you choose to embrace God's plan for your life. Huh. When did that become the equivalent of being born again? Choosing to embrace God's plan for your life. I'm not familiar with any passages that equate that with being born again. In fact, nothing even remotely comes close to that. You live, it'll change the way you work, it'll change your marriage, it'll change your parenting, it'll change your friendships, it changes every square inch of your life. Now, here's the thing I've, know, I've learned about destiny, dynasty. I've learned that many of us don't really believe 
Don't trust that God is really thinking about us when he thinks about our future. It really, he's not really engaged with our life. Maybe God is so busy keeping the universe together, he doesn't really have time for me. You know, I believe that the most important thought you'll ever think is what you think about when you think of God. We say that all the time at Keystone Church. The most important thought you'll ever think is what you think about when you think of God. And if you think of God as like chasing you down to get you to stop sinning, then you'll always be running from him. If you believe that God is the God who is kind of kicking back and watching and waiting for your good deeds saying, have you done enough? What have you done for me lately? No, I'm not going to do that. But if you believe that God is just kind of waiting back, seeing how, how many good deeds you've done and say, you know what? You're a pretty good kid. Come on in. Then you will always live with a sense of insecurity. Have I done enough? Exhaustion. I can't do enough. Or spiritual pride. Look at all I've done. And the world doesn't need any more prideful so-called believers And God doesn't want you to live an exhausted life. And God doesn't want you to leave here with a sense of insecurity. You see, when you think about God, all of those thoughts about God are not the God of the Bible. That's the God of our culture. That's not the God of our Bible. It's not what God says about himself. This is what God says about himself. When he thinks of you, this is what he thinks. Psalm 139, 16 says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. Think about that. That means that God certainly is the God of the cosmos. I mean, when you begin to think about how God is the God who keeps the universe so finely tuned that life is to exist on earth? Did you know? So notice he's not talking about the wrath of God against sin and hell and punishment. He's saying, oh, listen, listen, God's up there in heaven and he's just thinking all kinds of wonderful and precious thoughts about you. No mention of the wrath of God. No repentance at all even hinted at. In fact, you, if you think God's up there thinking about, oh, well, you know, you're going to hell. Oh, no, no, no. God's up in heaven, according to him. Uh, you know, uh, basically thinking all these wonderful things about you, right? How precious to me are your thoughts, oh God? How vast is the sum of them? You know, things like that. You see, God's up there just, you're, you're the apple of his eye. Huh. You know, if the moon was just to move a little bit further away from the earth's gravitation, from the earth's, from the circumference of the earth, understand that, that the tidal waves would change to the point life could not exist. That if the earth were to move away from the sun closer or further away, just a fraction of where it is now, understand life could not exist. Certainly God is the God of cosmos that holds the universe together so that life can exist. Certainly he's that. But according to Psalm 139, God is also the God who sits on the edge of your bed and waits for you to wake up every morning. And when you wake up, he can look into your eyes and say, I've been thinking about you. He's not too busy. He's not so preoccupied keeping the cosmos together that he doesn't look upon you when you wake You know, it's weird because Scripture says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for our sins to reconcile us to God. Huh, why would we need to be reconciled? I'm not finding any hint here of an answer to that question at all. Wake up every morning and say, I've been thinking about you. As a matter of fact, his thoughts are so numerous, the Bible says, they outnumber the grains of the sand of the seas. All along the beaches of every ocean, it outnumbers every grain of sand. In other words, God thinks about you more than you think about you. And I don't know about you, but we think about ourselves a lot. God thinks about you more than you think about yourself. God has a design and a future, and the future that he has for you is good. Jeremiah 29.11 says, Jeremiah 29.11, out of context. Read it in context. Just start at Jeremiah 29, verse 1, and see who this is written to. Okay? Um, and you'll notice that this is a letter dictated by God, uh, you know, uh, to the, the exiles through the prophet Jeremiah, the exiles in Babylon. Yeah, this this Jeremiah twenty nine eleven thing is not some generic promise that oh God's oh he's got just some great things for you, man. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. To give you a future and a hope. You see, God is the God who has a design in mind for you. The Bible says, before the foundations of the earth. You had a plan for my life. And what that So God is a God who has a plan and a design for you. This is the purpose-driven gospel. This is not the biblical gospel. The Christ died for your sins and was raised again on the third day for your justification. This is the God has a purpose, a destiny for you. All you got to do is make a decision to find out what that destiny is and God will start revealing it to you. Different gospel, false gospel. This gospel cannot save. What that means is that God, before anything was created, he had you in mind. That God had a design in mind for you. In the book of Ephesians, he says that you were his masterpiece. You were his masterpiece. That's not what the text says. That's what the message paraphrase or butchering of Ephesians 2.10 says. But that's not what the biblical text says. Not in any good translation. And that God has an image of you in his mind, in his heart, in his will of who you could be functioning at your full potential. That God created you to function at a full potential. Ah, so this is all about the gospel of you functioning at your full potential. Right. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we begin to see what that potential looked like. We begin to see a world where Adam and Eve, our very first family had perfect relationship with one another, perfect connection with God. There were no bombs. There were no barbed wires. There were no bad breakups, no divorce, no war, no prisons, none of that stuff. It was a beautiful existence. And God said to them, he breathed purpose into their heart. He said, hey, be fruitful, multiply. He didn't say, hey, stay here, be boring. He said, be fruitful, multiply, man, have a blast. And this is what he said. He said, now, you have the whole world as your pleasure playground. You have the fruit of every tree for you to eat and enjoy. I have this one tree. Now, if I was God, I would have at least just said, I want Texas. Okay? I mean, that's just me. 
or at least America. But he's like, you know, I just want one tree. Some of you have said, give me an acre. Give me five acres. He said, I want one tree. I have one tree. And on this one tree, I don't want you to take any of its fruit. That fruit belongs to me. Now, for him to say that is powerful because what God is saying is you have the whole world as your pleasure playground. This tree is mine. And it's kind of like me that I say, I'm married. I'm married to Susan. I love Susan. So all to all the single guys out there, back off, son. <laughs> or it's about to get serious. I know you're intimidated right now. I've been working on that. Son. Since fifth grade. But here's the thing. What did the first family do? The Bible teaches, shows us, that the reason that all this is messed up, the reason that everything's jacked up in our world, the reason we have bad breakups, bombs, barbed wire, the reason we have war, the reason we have hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, is because the first family went, and what did they do? They took and put their hands on God's fruit. The one thing. And they consumed it. What happened next is something that we inherited. It's a sin nature. Sin crashed into the spiritual DNA of every person. And you remember that image that God has of you? You remember before the foundations of the earth, this picture that he had of you? This sinless picture of you functioning at your God-given potential? The plans that he has for you to... Weird, because notice he's not actually reading any biblical text. He's just summarizing stories so that he can tell us about how God has this picture of you for you achieving your God-given potential. Hmm. Prosper you not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. That picture was shattered with sin. S-I-N. Sin is where it all went wrong. You could say that sin is when I duck my dynasty. Sin causes me to duck my destiny. Mm, Oh, yeah. Oh, that's terrible. So... So sin causes me to duck my destiny so that I don't live at my full God-given potential. That's not the gospel. That is something completely different. Sin keeps me from my God-given potential. Sin keeps, keeps me from functioning in my full purpose. Sin keeps me with a little bit of insecurity. Sin causes me to have issues, emotional or appetites that are off. Sin keeps me in a bad place. Sin breaks everything, not only with me, but all of creation. And God had a plan. God said, basically, either I scrap this whole thing and start over, do something different, because he didn't need us. He wanted us. So what did he do? He said, I'm going to make a provision so that everybody can go back to their God-given potential. Technically, we call that sanctification. But what he did, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price we couldn't pay to die the death we deserve to die. Jesus Christ is the reason we are here right now and have a chance at reaching that God-given potential. It is Jesus. Mm, So Jesus gives us the chance to live at our God-given potential. Huh. Weird, huh? Jesus Christ. It all went wrong in the garden. It all went wrong with that first family. What we deal with now, crying babies and late night diapers, blame the first family. My little kids, we taught. What about hell and the wrath of God? Taught them this so much that, that at one point somebody was sick and just feeling bad. And they were like, Adam, why did you do it? <laughs> I thought that was so cute. 
<laughs> it's true, they did that. The Apostle Paul echoed this. The Apostle Paul said, and the Apostle Paul wrote so much of our New Testament. This is a holy man. This is a guy who died for what he believed in. And the Apostle Paul said, hey, this holy man, he said this. He said, there are things that I know are the right thing to do. See if you can relate to this. And I don't do it. And then there are these things over here that I know are the wrong things to do. Yeah, that's what I'm, I tend to do. This holy man, he said, there's something inside of me, sin, that causes me to duck my destiny, duck my dynasty. The things that are good, I avoid. The things that are bad, I run to. Sound familiar? The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus, when he was walking and teaching. So sin is when you duck your dynasty and don't live at your God-given potential. Hmm. Jesus, when he was doing miracles, at one point, the religious elite of the day, they didn't like Jesus so much, and they brought this woman who had just been caught in an act of adultery. Just been caught in the act of adultery. She wasn't a saint. She was a sinner. Caught in the act of adultery, brought before him, and they said, Rabbi, according to our laws, she should be, she should be stoned. Capital punishment. And they said, what do you say? They were trying to trap him. And Jesus drew something in the sand. I have no idea what it was. Some people are like, he drew the... No, we don't know what he wrote. He drew in the sand, he picked up a stone, and he looked at these men and he said these famous words, if any among you have no sin, you be the one to cast the first Stone. What was he saying? He was echoing Paul. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What was he saying? He was saying we all have a sin nature. We all duck our dynasty. You know, don't duck your dynasty. I love that title. Let me tell you what will be. This contextualization actually evacuates the biblical meaning behind anything regarding the gospel and sanctification and any of it. So, yeah, you know, sin causes you to duck your dynasty. Gasp. Terrible. Oh, that's horrible. And, yeah. Well, what if I only live at like 75% of my God-given potential? Will that be enough? We'll be doing over the next several weeks. We're going to look at the first several kings of Israel. We're going to look at King Saul, King David, King Solomon, King Rehoboam, Hezekiah, Manasseh. We're going to look at these kings of Israel. And as we look at these kings, we're going to see how they sinned, how they ducked their destiny. They ducked their dynasty. And then we're going to compare them to the king who didn't, who did not duck his dynasty. Because you see, it's all about the king. That's right. Jesus, he lived up to his God-given potential. Right. And at the end of the day, we all have a choice to make. It's either the me king or the the king. And there ain't nothing in between. Hear this loud and clear. It's either the me king or it's the the king, and there's nothing in between. Let me just kind of illustrate it this way. I have a ball here. That's what it is. It's a ball, in case you didn't know. That God has designed the universe to function in a certain kind of way. And God has designed the universe for it to function where he is the center of it. Now, right now, I hope you're feeling a little insecure here at Keller. Because this ball could come off at any time, and I, I kind of hope it does, because I love drama. <laughs> God has created the world 
for it to revolve around himself. And in the sweet spot of God's design, it did. Sin caused something else to happen, to move away from the the king and move to the me king. And so what we begin to see is with sin, we begin to want ourselves to be the center of our universe. And you want Yeah, you can't do that and expect to live your God-given destiny. Right, yeah. Wonder why there's so many conflicts and why is there so many fights and why is it so bitterness and why is it so hard to have a good friend and why, 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 why is the divorce rate just, just skyrocketing? Why? It's because of the me king. And you think about it. If I'm a little king over here and I want the whole world to be around me, maybe, maybe you've even heard statements that are me king statements like, I just want to be happy or I want to find someone. Have you ever seen The Bachelor? I'm assuming you haven't. <laughs> but I'm just looking for someone. They'll say, the girls will say, I'm looking for a guy who will make me laugh every day. <laughs> I got a word for you. Do not get married <laughs> if you want to laugh every day. Just... <laughs> I'm not lying either. Save yourself that. So here I am, and I'm a selfish person. I want the world to revolve around me. And here the other person is, friend or spouse or whatever, boyfriend, girlfriend, and you want the world to revolve around you. I need you right now. I need you right now. Do you know what I'm going through? I'm going to punch myself in the face with this thing. And I'm like, no, I need you right now. I need you to meet my needs. No, I need you to meet my needs. And if we start running toward each other, somebody's going to get cold knocked out. This is almost as obnoxious as an Ed Young sermon. I think you get the point. I'm done with the ball. Here we go. All right. Good catch. Here's the thing. That ball wore me out. I'm not going to lie. I'm sweating. I promise I work out, but that just took it out of me. Here's the thing. The me king or the the king, you don't have a choice. If you want to experience the sweet spot of your life, the only choice is for you to revolve around one center for your life. And this, if you want to what? Uh-huh. Yeah. Not, a, not be forgiven, not burn in hell. Nothing, nothing about the wrath of God. You know, if you want to have like, you know, live in the sweet spot of your potential. The center for your life is God himself. You say, well, how do I get there? How do I make God the center of my life? How do I make God the organizing factor of my life? How do I ask God to change me from the inside out from being a me? Make God the organizing factor of my life. What is this? A me king person to being a the king person. How do I do that? Well, if you want to embrace, if you want to stop ducking your dynasty... Then follow the one who never ducked his. If you want to embrace your destiny, then follow the... So if I want to embrace my destiny, I need to, to follow the one who didn't duck his dynasty. The theology on this is just breathtakingly awful. Follow the one who never ducked his dynasty, Jesus Christ. And you say, what do you mean by that? Jesus came to earth knowing he was coming on a mission. God sent Jesus on a mission, and that was to reconnect us to God and reconnect us 
to our God-given potential. So on the cross of Christ, I like to think of it this way. When Jesus, Which scripture says that Christ came to reconnect us to our God-given potential? I, I'm not familiar with that. Jesus was on the cross, that he was, his arms extended like this. I like to think of it this way, that he was taking the hand of sinful persons and he was taking the hand of God and on the cross of Christ, he was reconciling us to God. He was making it okay. He was bringing us back together again because he took our sin on himself. Um, elaborate there because that sounds like the magnitude of what Jesus accomplished is far more than just helping us reconnect with our God potential. Um, why was there a breach for real? And uh, what happens if you die unreconciled? That's not even hinted at here. You say, did he really know that? Yeah, he did. Mark chapter 10. He begins to talk about it. Mark chapter 10, before he ever was crucified, he told about it. He said in verse 32, they were now on their way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe and the people followed behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with the whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus scoreboarded him. He totally scoreboarded him. Now, if you're into sports, you know what I'm talking about. For those of us that aren't, let me just explain. Scoreboarding, baseball's coming. Scoreboarding is whenever somebody gets in the batter's box and it's about time to take the pitch and they go, whoa, they step out of the batter's box. Little drama. Oh, what's happening? What's happening? Hang on a second. He backs out. And then scoreboarding comes when he looks over and he goes, what's he saying? I'm about to hit a home run and it's going to be right over there. It was like he did not just do that. He did not just do that. Yes, he did. He scoreboarded. That's scoreboarding, okay? Then he gets back into the batter's box. Come on, baby. You like my stance? It's not any good. I know. Don't judge. <laughs> and one, two, three strikes, you're out. That's usually the way it goes. But when Jesus... <laughs> don't ever scoreboard, kids. All right? Um, when Jesus stepped into the batter's box... Metaphorically speaking, he scoreboarded. He's like, okay, guys, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 8. Even the prophets were scoreboarding. All throughout the Old Testament, they were telling about how he would die, details about how he would die that, that he fulfilled perfectly. And they were, the Bible's just scoreboarding, scoreboarding. In Mark chapter 8, he scoreboards. And here in Mark chapter 10, he scoreboards. And it says, he told, talked about it all the time. And what he did was he said, see over there, see Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, I will be betrayed. I will be arrested. I will be beaten. I will be mocked. I will be crucified. And three days later, I will rise again. Now, come on, bring it. That's what Jesus did. He scoreboarded. You see, Jesus Christ did not duck his destiny. His arrest was not a shock to him. His crucifixion was not a big surprise. How could they do this to me? The Bible teaches that Jesus had at his disposal the armies of heaven to call down upon those that were hurting him. And he held them at bay. 
Can you imagine being an angel on that day? Just saying, let me get him. Don't you smack my Savior. Don't you get the Son of God. I just can't imagine. That's my brain. I mean, could you imagine being an angel on that day? Just, Jesus, stop holding me back. Which biblical text is he preaching from again? The Bible says the angels marvel at God's love for us. What do you think about when you think of God? The type of God that causes the angelic beings to scratch their head and said, what do you see in them, God? God says, I see a lot. I see a lot of potential. I see a lot of destiny. I see a great dynasty. And Jesus, what did he do? Very publicly, I might add, he went straight for his destiny. What did he do? He stood on the cross and he died. The Bible says that he was a very public death and it was a brutal death. If you're at North Fort Worth, here at Keller, the stage that I stand on, he was about this high off the ground, two, three feet off the ground when he was crucified. I've been to Israel. I've seen a Roman cross. It's not what you think. You think of this high and lofty thing way off on the distance where you can kind of see it. No, two, three feet off the ground, he stood, brutalized, murdered, dying slowly, and it was on the busiest traffic pattern in the whole city. That was on purpose because the crucifixion was a capital punishment. It was a deterrent to crime. They wanted thousands upon thousands of people. And this happened to be the most populated moment in all of Jerusalem's calendar year. So here they were thousands upon thousands of people, more people than I will speak to this weekend, walking by the brutalized Christ. They saw him die very publicly. He was put in a tomb They were concerned, so they posted guards to make sure nothing happened to that dead body of Jesus Christ. Three days later, he scoreboarded. Three days later, he came back from the dead. He began to show himself to hundreds of people. The Bible says hundreds of people. History tells us hundreds of people testified. Outside sources testify. Now, these facts are true. It's the theology attached to these facts that's the problem. Saw Jesus Christ risen. Now, the type of Jesus they saw was not a Jesus that had survived the crucifixion. Like come out and said, oh, I'm going to teach for a second, but give me a break. Hang on. I was, uh, you know, just crucified. (sighs) Okay, now I'm ready. No, he didn't like limp out. No, the Bible says he came out healed. Now that, that, that sounds crazy. And it is uh, healed. Um, he was raised again from the dead. It's a little more than a healing. Have you ever had the prayer? God, if you're real, would you show yourself to me? He answered that prayer 2000 years ago. And he proved that prayer to be true. When he did what only a God could do. It's crazy for us. He conquered death, came back to life. And in that, he offers you life. He offers me life. So today, what kind of life do you want to walk out of here with? How Do you want to really experience true life today? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. You know, there's a, there's a French mathematician and philosopher. His name is Blaise Pascal. Yeah. 
He looks like he belongs in like ACDC or something. So here's the answer to the question. I did I did get emails from you all. Who said the God-shaped hole in your heart? That's Blaze Pascal. Some 70s band, doesn't he? <laughs> to me, he does. Blaze Pascal said this. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing. But only God, the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And I agree with him. What did we just read in Ephesians 3? That if you want to follow, you want to, you want to embrace your dynasty, don't duck your dynasty. Embrace your dynasty by following the one who embraced his, who refused to duck his dynasty. And how do you do that? Number one, ask Christ into your heart. It says, as Christ wants to make his home in your heart as you trust him. Okay, now we talked about this last week. Let's take a look at that Ephesians 3 passage. Context, context, context. Does Ephesians 3 teach you to ask Jesus into your hearts? Well, let's take a look at the context. We'll start at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone uh, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, that's funny because Ephesians is actually written to Christians. And just because it talks about Christ dwelling in our hearts doesn't mean that somebody is, quote, born again when they ask Jesus into their hearts. That is a misuse of this passage. And by the way, Blaise Pascal's idea about the God-shaped hole in the, you know, or vacuum or whatever, that's not in the Bible. I invite you today, as the Bible says, to call upon the name of the Lord so you can be saved. The first message after the resurrection of Christ. Okay, my question. Okay, he wants us to call on the name of the Lord so we can be saved. This is a true concept, but saved from what? What he's told us we need to be saved from is purposelessness. Whereas scripture makes it clear that we're being saved from the wrath of God. We haven't heard anything about that. So, you know, are you you want to you don't want to duck your destiny. Jesus came and he didn't duck his destiny. He fulfilled it. And so you want to be like Jesus, don't you? Well, you need to ask Jesus into your heart so that, you know, you can be saved. Saved from what? Well, purposelessness, not having a good dynasty, things of that nature. Again, oftentimes Discernment isn't about something being off by, you know, 15, 20, 30, 90 degrees. Oftentimes, discernment is learning the difference between something that's off 
by only one or two degrees. What we're dealing with here is a different gospel. No mention of the wrath of God. Christ and ascension of Christ. The first message was the apostle Peter and he called people into a life-changing moment where they began a relationship with Jesus. If you want to walk back to your potential, if you want to give the Heisman walk back to your potential to your me King syndrome, you want to walk into God's design for your life. It begins with a moment where you invite Christ into your life. And I'm going to walk back into God's design for your life. Mm. I'm going to give you a moment in just a moment. I'm going to lead you through how to do that. The second thing that we see in Ephesians chapter three, verse 18, and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is, you know, just inviting Christ into your the home of your heart, asking him to re-wallpaper the walls and redecorate the room. That's the first step and the most important. So I want Jesus to come into my heart and then redecorate. So Jesus is the cosmic interior designer. And step. The whole rest of our series, we'll start talking about then, as Ephesians says, with his resurrection power, he can change the way you think. He can change the way you feel that the power of God, the resurrection power of God is able to change your appetites that are off, your attitudes that are whacked. God wants to change you. That means, ladies, the husband you think can't change with the resurrection power of God, he can change. Guys, the, the, the wife that you think can't change, she can change resurrection power. That means that if you're a little lazy at work and you've got this thing, you don't know how to kick it. You have an addiction. You don't know how to kick resurrection power. That's our answer. That's our answer. And it begins by trusting Christ in your heart. And then trusting him for what again, trusting him that he has a God given potential plan thing for me. What does it say in verse 19? Check this out. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So what does that mean? That means that with the power of God in your life, in a relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ, that you can have the love of Christ in your heart. You know, we'll only love others as we have first been loved. And most of us, all of us, I'll argue, have been loved imperfectly. God wants to give you a love you've never been received on your own. God wants to give you the love of God. And we don't need any more grumpy religious people. Amen. The love of Christ shared with the people that you love. The love of Christ in your marriage. The love of Christ in our communities. The love of Christ in government. The love of Christ in our companies. The love of Christ. May he be the center. So how does that happen? Romans chapter 10. Now we're coming down to that defining moment right here, right now. Romans chapter 10. I feel like he's selling me a life insurance policy. Says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I'm going to say that again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So I want to invite you to join me in a very simple prayer. And to do that, could I ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes? So here, this is the close of the sale. I might want to listen to a little bit of this. Now, I'm asking you to do that to provide a little privacy for the people around you. Just cue sappy music. This is to create the impression that God and the Holy Spirit has now arrived 
to get busy within the congregation? Just a little space so that if God is speaking to your neighbor, to the person sitting next to you or around you, that they don't have to worry about if, if you're looking around and will they see... This is between you and God right here, right now. So That's you- right. Do you, do you want to stop ducking your dynasty so that you can live up to your God potential? Would you give someone the courtesy of privacy right now? Yeah, you got to get busy with God. You got you, you to gotta privately let God know while no one's looking that you, you, wanna, you don't want to duck your dynasty anymore. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Thank you so much. Now, what I'd like to do, if God is speaking to your heart, maybe you didn't expect it today. Uh, God, uh, what? You're just coming to Easter service. Speaking to my heart. Okay. But today, if you'd like to begin a lifelong journey of following Christ, I want to walk you through this Romans 10 passage in the form of a prayer. And it begins this way. God, I am a sinner. So we're going to pray the sinner's prayer. We had just a scad little bit of explanation about what sin is no mention of the eternal consequences god's wrath um judgment um you know anything like that in fact we were told that god's up in heaven just thinking all kinds of wonderful thoughts about you and that he really knows your potential and and he you know jesus didn't duck his dynasty and he you know you don't want to keep ducking yours and so we have some tiny remote idea of sin here so he's trying to get people to close the deal would you just pray that God, I confess I am a sinner. I've messed up. God, I am a sinner. I've ducked my destiny. Uh, I cannot go on. God, I'm a sinner. I've ducked my destiny. (laughs) need to duck out of this sermon is what I need to do. So there you go. And I picked them for two completely different reasons, both of these different sermons. Each of them has different reasons why I think that you should consider them uh, as you vote at the end of the week uh, You know, for which one is the worst Easter sermon of the year 2013. Now, this one did mention Jesus. We even got a lot of the historical events regarding Christ's death and resurrection correctly. It's the theological explanation the theology that was attached to those historical events that was the problem. So with that, I think we're going to duck out. Ha! That was intentional. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.